0: Good morning, everyone. you got me again. Uh, And with a different mic, it seems a different mic every time. I don't really want to use the hand mic. Um, I really believe that God wants to do something this morning. I believe that God's spirit is moving in this place. I believe that he wants to change hearts, change minds. Break down barriers, break down strongholds this morning. And I believe Satan doesn't want any of that, and he wants to throw as many obstacles in our way as he can. And we've been having technical gremlins and things like that, but we need to push past that because we're strong together. Um, Valentine's Day, that's over and done with for another year. I've got My lovely cheesy, um, you can't see it, I don't know why I bother. My lovely cheesy uh, Valentine's backdrop there. I don't know about you, but I spent Valentine's Day writing a sermon while Becky did my ironing. And they say romance is dead. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> last week, we looked at what the Bible teaches us about marriage and singleness. Uh, and I challenged everyone to do one thing to affirm someone who's in a different situation to you. I just want to know, like, raise your hand if you actually took any action, whether it was a really small action, based on last week's message. Did you do anything? Well, well done. The very few of you have put your hands up. Really well done. And everyone else, if we want to see change... We've got to actually make that change happen ourselves. No one's going to do this. The leadership team won't do all the fellowship for you. That can't be the way it works. So let's do that this week, okay? Today, we're going to look at the particular challenges of living as a single Christian in the UK and how we as a church can pastorally respond to and support our single brothers and sisters. But I need to start with a pretty healthy caveat. I'm 39 years old. Just. There's five days to go now to the big 4-0. Um, I'm not looking forward to that at all. (laughs) Um, And the longest I've been single since puberty is around about eight weeks. Um, Before I met Becky, I'd had three girlfriends, and I'd been dumped six times. That's two for one. I don't know what that says about my ability in relationships, but there you go. That's that's the truth. Um, Also, Becky and I kind of cheated at the Christian marriage thing. We'd lived together for several years before we got married. Um, Becky wasn't a Christian, and I didn't really know any better. I didn't think it was important back then. I mean, that's all, my mind's completely changed on it now. But it was incredibly convenient to be able to live together and then actually find out the truth after after the fact. So I'm not really qualified to talk about singleness, is what I'm saying. However, when you prepare a talk like this, you go on a journey. And I've learned a great deal from journeying with Anna through some pretty painful territory for her. I wanted her to preach these messages, but she said, John, I'm no preacher, but I trust you to do it. And so here I am, and I only hope that I can do it justice. Last week, we saw that it's perfectly normal to want to get married, and that marriage is a gift from God, but that it's increasingly difficult for single Christians to find partners, especially for women. We also explored how singleness is a gift from God, but that it's not always desired and that we're also called to give our undivided devotion to God, to seek his kingdom without obsessing about our worldly status. The problem is we're not perfect, and all too often we bring um, the attitudes of the world into our church. We place marriage on a pedestal. We um, create unexp- uh, unrealistic expectations for our children to marry And we also mold our church calendar, our church ministries and social life around the rhythm and needs of biological families. And that leaves our single people feeling unloved, unimportant, second-rate, and sometimes even as if they're defective. Now, I'm sure of two things on this subject this morning. The first is that not all single people feel like that, and not all of the time. The second is, nobody comes to church deliberately intending to make single people feel bad. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Nevertheless, Anna and I have researched this, and there's an absolute groundswell of emotional hurt and negative feeling amongst single people in the church. There's even a chapter devoted to it in Wade and Grudem's new book on Christian ethics. UK research shows that single Christians feel isolated and lonely in church. And while many do feel part of the church family most felt the church didn't understand or address their needs, focusing too much on families. But by far the most poignant examples are those closer to home. Anna and I, mostly Anna, asked our single Christian friends what they thought about their singleness, and Anna compiled a brief video with their responses. some really interesting insight from people within our church and a few people outside our church as well. But there are a few more observations that I really wanted to share with you, um, most of which are from our church. One person said, I feel like I might be fundamentally flawed because no one has chosen me to marry. Another said, I was hurt by the suggestion that I'm spiritually stronger because I've been obedient and not married a non-Christian, as if my singleness was a reward for being strong. It makes my obedience feel like a punishment or a curse. I feel tempted to doubt God actually wants me to be happy. Another person was sharing the peace with an older lady at church who said to him, you must be a disappointment to your parents not being married or having children yet. Now that wasn't at our church, thankfully, but single people in our church have admitted feeling that they've let down or embarrassed their parents for the very same reason. Another said this, if I'm honest, I feel like I've lined up for a race at the Olympics. The starting pistol was fired and everyone else ran off. Somehow I didn't hear it and I'm standing awkwardly on the starting line, feeling the shame of the crowd looking at me, shouting patronizing encouragements while the other runners are already off into the distance. I feel like skulking off to the changing rooms and going home rather than starting to run. It's too late. Is that a bleak picture? Well, that's genuinely how I feel. Someone else said, what if I get Parkinson's or Alzheimer's and become horrible to be around? Who's going to care about me when I'm old? I'm frustrated by throwaway comments in sermons such as, we've all got a book of baby names on the shelf at home. What about giving out flowers on Mothering Sunday? We used to give flowers only to mothers. Now all women are included, but it's really weird. And a number of single women actually avoid church on that Sunday. I mean, how sad is it that we actually alienate our our brothers and sisters on Mothering Sunday when actually Mothering Sunday was never supposed to be about your biological mother. The tradition actually originated where Christians would go to their mother church they'd actually go to celebrate once a year with their original spiritual family. It just happened that that was often where their biological parents worshipped. So some of those examples may seem trivial or tongue-in-cheek. Some of them were really shocking, like that one in the piece. No one's suggesting for a minute that we'll be able to fix this overnight, or that we'll ever be a perfect church, but we must try. I remember the emotional overflow from Anna as we explored her feelings together, the genuine pain and confusion that she felt was heartbreaking for me to see. I joked about my Valentine's Day earlier, but the unvarnished truth is that I actually came pretty close to breakdown that evening. Um, The demands of work, family and church pressures, combined with a lack of sleep, led me pretty close to the brink. But Becky, my wife, came alongside me. She prayed with me and she encouraged me. And it was just enough, just at the right time. Single people don't have that companionship on their doorstep. They would have to reach out to receive that. Would I have reached out had I been on my own? I'm not sure I would. I'm going to use two passages to explore the biblical response to this unwanted suffering. And the first is 1 Peter, chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 3 to 7 from the New Living Translation. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, that your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials... It will bring you much praise and glory and honour on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Now, Singleness isn't always a trial, and it is a gift from God. But where it's unwanted, it is certainly a test of faith. And it causes some people to doubt whether God has good plans for them. Quite simply, it sucks. I believe it falls into the category of various trials that Peter is referring to here. So let's take just a moment to reflect on the promises of this passage. We have a priceless inheritance. It is pure and undefiled. It can't change. It's protected. It is safe. God is protecting you by his power, and he's all-powerful. So there is nothing that can get in the way of that, no power that can alter that. There is wonderful joy ahead. And the trials you experience will testify, will prove that your faith is genuine. And that faith is more precious than anything on this earth. And your faith will bring you much praise and glory and honor when Jesus returns. These are trustworthy promises founded upon the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know from Psalm 68 that the Lord will not withhold anything, any good thing, from those who do what is right. And from Romans 8, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is sovereign over who gets married and who doesn't. He can and he will bring good to you, though it may not come in the form of marriage. And he delights and he rejoices in your faith and in your obedience to him. So we can join with Paul in 2 Corinthians in being able to say, we are perplexed, but not in despair. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Our second passage is Psalm 68, and this reveals how we are to respond. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him, his name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. And widows are a very important picture in scripture, and I don't have time to go into that in depth, but they are referred to 54 times in the Old Testament and 26 times in the New Testament. And I've found that there are some really interesting parallels that we can draw between widows in biblical times and single people today. First of all, widows are grieving. They are mourning the loss of a spouse and lamenting their situation. As Anna and I have explored the feelings of a number of single people, it's become abundantly clear to me that as they get older, they are grieving the death of their expectations of a married life. And women especially grieve the loss of potential children. This is a genuine and protracted grieving process. It's the slow, silent suffocation of hope it should not be underestimated or downplayed widows struggled in biblical times to provide financially for themselves and for their families obviously in modern times single people are able to work own property and provide for themselves however they are more vulnerable to changing circumstances without the backup of a spouse and they also suffer a significant financial penalty did you realize that researchers have looked at this, and in the UK, every single year, single people pay between 2000 and £6,000 more than their married counterparts, every single year. In biblical times, widows experienced a type of cultural death in a patriarchal society. And the outpouring of feelings from single people made it clear that they feel ostracized and ignored, especially in the church of all places. So they are experiencing a type of social exclusion. Widows required special protection and care. And the Bible shows that this was a measure by which the rulers in Israel should be judged how well they cared for orphans and widows. James 1.27 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So how we care for vulnerable people, suffering people, and yes, single people in our church, is how we should be judged. It's a key measure of the health of our church and how we are serving God. And the answer on how to do it is right here, Back in Psalm 68, God sets the lonely in families. But what does that really mean? My seven-year-old daughter is in our family. She doesn't have a boyfriend, praise God. Long may that continue. (laughs) Um, uh, She doesn't lack any physical intimacy. She doesn't lack security or companionship. I'm not trying to trivialize this. I know full well that a young child has very different emotional needs and drives to an adult. But this passage is talking about adopting single adults into unrelated families. Now, the historical practice of this was really practical because families were economic units. They needed to be strong together to survive. In fact, in the UK, the term spinster, which we used to refer to single women, derived from uh, the single woman who spanned the yarn as part of a household to contribute financially to that family, to that household. Now, today, most of us don't need to be placed in families in order to survive, but we certainly need them to thrive, and we need them for our mental well-being. But the experience of single Christians all over this country is that they're simply not being invited into family homes. I do believe the church can supplant and fulfill the needs of single people for companionship and intimacy in a beautiful, familial way and through evangelism and nurturing spiritual growth, the desire for offspring can be fulfilled in Christ's family. I don't think Jesus and Paul settled for second best in their singleness. I think they were genuinely fulfilled in Christ and in fellowship with all the saints. There are two really beautiful examples of mutual relationship between a family and a single Christian in the Bible. Now the first of these is in 2 Kings chapter 4. So we read how Elisha went to Shunem, and he was invited to eat at the house of a wealthy woman. Then later, whenever he passed by, he would eat with this couple, with the woman and her husband. And then after a while, they built a small room on their roof and furnished it for him, so Elisha would always have a place to stay. Elisha then looked for a way to bless the couple in return. So just note here that the initial invitation was to a complete stranger, The wealthy woman and her husband, they didn't know Elisha. They might have heard of him, but they didn't know him. So they just invited him around for dinner. And then the relationship developed entirely naturally through several social interactions over a period of time. There's nothing odd about this. It's completely natural. The couple made themselves available to meet Elisha's needs and they continued to meet his emotional and physical needs whenever he needed that. And then they were hugely blessed in return, which you can read about in that chapter. The next example is in Acts chapter 18, where we see Paul travels to Corinth, and two of the first people he meets are Priscilla and Aquila. And if you want to know more about Priscilla and Aquila, then I'd advise you to talk to Ray Markham, because he knows an awful lot about them. But they were strangers. Again, note they were strangers at this point. But because they were all tent makers by trade, they decided to join forces. Paul joined With them, and they labored together. What that enabled Paul to do was focus on preaching the gospel because he didn't have to do all the work to provide for himself by himself. And so he stayed in Corinth for a long time, 18 months or more. And Presumably, he lived with Priscilla and Aquila and was supported by them during this time. And you know, they developed such a strong and close relationship and bond that when it came time for Paul to leave for Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila left and went with him as well. So to look at this in a modern context, I thought I'd invite Anna to talk a bit about her relationship with my family. Um, And I promise you, I haven't paid her to say anything nice, although we did... We did have pizza together, and, and I paid last night, so maybe maybe that's a bit... <laughs> oh, sorry, I've got to ask the question, haven't I? Um, right, yes, Anna, as a single person, what kind of things do you appreciate from our friendship?
1: Um, so I can go round to John and Becky's house and just be part of the family and just chill out with them, um, watch TV, play games, and do a whole number of other things, and that's really lovely. Um, I have a really special bond with Grace because she's my goddaughter, one of my goddaughters. Um, And that's a really um, important bond um, with us. And also I can go and talk really big decisions over um, with John and Becky.
0: Anna's a bit like Mike Pilavachi. She has godchildren coming out of her ears. Um, We're very lucky to have her. So what support do we give one another?
1: (laughs) So we often sit and just... Talk over issues that we have, things that um, you know are on our hearts, on our minds, and that. Um, we're also one another's emergency contacts because neither of us have um, immediate family in Peterborough. So I'm one of Grace's emergency contacts at school, and John and Becky are my emergency contact, and um, and we go to music events together, and sporting events, and things like that.
0: Yeah, it really is mutually beneficial. Um, but given that, is there anything you actually still struggle with?
1: So I still worry that I'm imposing myself on um, them and that I'm outstaying my welcome and things like that. And the other thing is, is that I struggle with what would happen if John and Becky left Peterborough, like some other good friends have, and I no longer have a support network.
0: And I thank you for being brave and standing up here and sharing honestly. I revealed last week that the UK church is approximately two-thirds married couples and one-third single people. Well, guess what? That means there's one single adult for every couple. How hard can that be to organize? By the way, we've bagged Anna. Hands off. Okay, she's ours. But seriously, we all need to look after one another. Every family, every couple has to reach out here. Couples and singles must draw near to each other, develop relationships, and explore how we can serve one another's unique needs. And that word unique is really important. You saw in the video, lack of hugs is one of the things that one of the single respondents struggled with. But don't go hugging a single person just because they're single, because they might be one of those people who's like, get off me. I don't like hugs. I don't get out of my personal space. You've got to know what people actually need. Now, if any single people really want to hug, I do love hugs, so just come and hug me. It'll all be good. Um, Married folks, if you've already adopted a single person into your family, can you make room for another? But let's not be patronizing about this. This isn't some feel-good trip to the animal rescue shelter to pick out a forlorn puppy. This is about growing in fellowship and love together. Single folks, you need to get over the fear of inviting yourself around. Becky and I assured Anna that she's always welcome in our home. And she didn't believe us. And you can see quite plainly that she still sometimes doesn't believe us. So we, made, we, we talked about it. And we made an important commitment to one another. Anna has committed that she will always reach out to us if she needs some company or some help. And I committed in return to her that I will always tell her if there's a specific reason why that's not convenient. So she needn't ever fear that she'll outstay her welcome. And you know what? She never will. Because she blesses us, and she's part of our family. Now, I think Mike Pilavachi describes this best. He's 60, he's single, and he's never been married. And I wanted to share a brief clip of him talking about his singleness at Naturally Supernatural last year. Oh, I adore Mike Pilavacci. Um Could you just move the slide onto the next one, please, Colin? Thank you. If you want to understand more about singleness, we gave out some leaflets at the, at the beginning of the service. If you didn't get one, there's plenty um, to go around. And they tell you a little bit about some of the assumptions that we make about single people and some of the ways that we can pastorally respond. But then, it's not an exhaustive list, but I really do recommend this website to you as well. It is a fantastic resource. It's singlefriendlychurch.com. And there's some great teaching on there, some great research data that you can see and really get a heart for how single people feel in Britain. We're going to share communion now, after which we'll move into a time of worship. We really want this to feel like our church family sharing the Lord's Supper together. In the stillness, please ask God to put a name on your heart for someone you need to be reaching out to. Whether you're single or married, ask God for a name. And then as we worship, if you feel prompted by God, go and share an encouragement or offer to pray with someone. Anna, why don't you come up? I'll pray for us and then we'll move into communion. Father God, We know that there are many different ways of suffering in this world and singleness is only one of them. But we thank you that we're all called to different circumstances and that you can use us wherever we are right now, Lord. Thank you that you love us with an unconditional and everlasting love and that you want us to be at peace and that that peace comes from Christ. And I pray that over this congregation we will... Have your shalom this morning, your peace and your wholeness, Lord God. Minister to us, move among us and speak to us. Come Holy Spirit. Amen.